0: Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapters 32 and 33 and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir the country of Edom instructing them
1: thus he shall say to my lord Esau thus says your servant Jacob I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now I have oxen donkeys flocks male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight.
0: And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape.
1: And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude.
0: The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him.
2: Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken.
1: But Jacob said...
2: And there he blessed him.
1: So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh.
0: And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, And behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept.
2: And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you?
1: Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants.
0: Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down.
2: Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met?
1: Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord.
2: But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself.
1: Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, because I have enough.
0: Thus Jacob urged him, and Esau took it. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
3: One Ancient Hope, it's it's good to be with you this morning on this first Sunday of of Lent. And I think as we'll find, this this is a perfect text for the first Sunday of, of Lent, because... What we find in this text is is a God that we don't expect. And in a way, what Lent prepares us for is to celebrate a God that we don't expect. And in light of that reality, let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you, Father, for what has been called the strange new world that Scripture invites us into. What we find here is a God we don't expect, but a God who is better than we ever could have expected, and a God who has given us the promise of his gospel in Jesus Christ. And Father, in light of those truths, I pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit that we might understand and embrace the words of this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we, we find here perhaps one of the one of the strangest and most surprising passages in all of Scripture. As verse 3224 tells us, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So we have to ask ourselves, what is happening here? because we come to find that the one that Jacob is wrestling with is God. Jacob comes to identify the wrestler as God. God has appeared to Jacob in human form, and he will wrestle with him throughout the duration of the night until the dawn breaks. So what are we to make of this? Well, let's begin by by framing this encounter, by by showing that the shape of this wrestling is actually much more familiar than we might initially think. The reformer John Calvin, in, in commenting on this passage, he says that in this wrestling, what we find is the very picture of the Christian life. What might at first strike us as absurd is actually, upon deeper reflection, what we every day experience. Calvin writes, quote, for as all prosperity from God's sorry, for as all prosperity flows from God's goodness, so adversity is either the rod with which he corrects our sins or the test of our faith and patience. End quote. Calvin is reminding us that everything that happens to us. Well, it's received from, the, gut, from the, the loving and sovereign hand of God. And often what we receive is adversity. Often what we receive are very painful circumstances. Yet, as Calvin tells us, these are intended by God to grow us, to grow us in faith and to grow us in patience. They're meant to mature us. But to be sure, this is not an easy process. And so Calvin, commenting on this passage, he says it's appropriate that what we find here is is a picture of what he calls hand-to-hand combat. And Calvin goes on to write, quote, Therefore, what was once exhibited under a visible form to our father Jacob is daily fulfilled in the individual members of the church namely, that in their temptations, it is necessary for them to wrestle with God. End quote. Calvin is telling us that the Christian life is a life of wrestling with God. But if that's the case, then then what are we to make of of this verse, of, of 32.25? When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. What does it mean that he did not prevail against Jacob? Does that mean that that God has met his match in Jacob? Does it mean that somehow God is unable to overcome Jacob? No, our our, our God is a great and sovereign God, and, and the only reason that Jacob exists is because God has created him and every second continually sustains him. So what's happening? Well, what we find here is an instance of of teaching, an instance of of training, and and this is something that we can relate to. If you're you're teaching someone the skills that they need for a game, especially if, if they're children, well, you don't use your full skill. You don't play your hardest. If you're teaching a child to play chess, you don't play as a chess grandmaster. The game would go so quickly, there would be no place for the child to learn. And in the same way, if you're teaching a child tennis, you're not gonna play like you're at Wimbledon. If the child can't return any shot, well, the kid has no time, no place to learn. You have to stoop down, you have to condescend, you have to, so to speak, play gently. And of course, as the child grows, You're going to play, you're going to change the way that you you play because what you want to constantly do is is challenge the child, but you don't want to crush the child. And this passage tells us that this is not unlike God's interaction with us, that God condescends, that God stoops, that God is is gentle, but that God is training us, but he's training us for something. And what is that something? Something. Well, Paul is very clear about what this goal is in Romans 8. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. End quote. So Paul is telling us that for Christians, all things work together for our good, But this is a very specific, a very particular good. It's to be formed into the image of Christ. And so what we are promised is that God works through all things, through whatever happens, to form us into this image of Christ. It is this good that God's wrestling trains us for and grows us into. But the fact that Jacob is not prevailed against Well, that tells us that God never crushes us. God does not seek to humiliate us. God does not seek to destroy us. He seeks to grow us. Just like the proper chess teacher or the proper tennis coach, the Christian life is one of wrestling with God. And it takes deep faith and deep trust to believe that God has exactly orchestrated our lives that we might best grow into the image of Christ. And we we, we mentioned this quote in an earlier sermon, but but I think it's appropriate here as well. This is from Pastor Tim Keller. He says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God may bring very hard things into our life, and all of us at some point will face sickness, sickness, we'll face death, we'll face loss. And we have to ask ourselves, what hardships are we now facing? Illness, unemployment, rejection, professional failures, unfulfilled hopes and and longings, deep, deep parental struggles. And I ask this with, with trepidation. How Do these hardships have the potential to form us into something that nothing else could? How do they call us to know and trust God in ways that no other circumstances could offer? And this is not an easy question, and there are no easy answers to this question. But if God is good, and if God truly, truly does seek our good... And this is a question as Christians that we must keep asking and asking and asking. The writer Annie Dillard in her, her classic book, Pilgrim at, at Tinker Creek, she gives us, I think, one very helpful way to, to, to think about cruelty. At one point, she describes cruelty as a waste of pain, a waste of pain. It's pain for, for no purpose. It's pain for no good reason It's pain simply for the sake of pain. God is never cruel. Yes, God does bring pain into our life, but it's never, ever wasted. As Psalm 56 tells us of God, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The psalmist is telling us that God keeps account of every one of our tossing, every one of our struggles, that not one tear is wasted, that each tear is precious in his sight, that God never brings us to tears lightly. God never brings us to weeping without purpose. God is never cruel. He keeps each tear in a bottle. He has written each tear in his book. And even though it might seem impossible, especially at the time he means each tear to form us into the image of Christ. And this tells us much about the expectations that we should have for this life. If we think that the purpose of life is comfort or luxury or financial stability or pleasure or making a name for ourselves, then we are going to be constantly disappointed because it just won't work. Life won't fall together like that. It's going to constantly disappoint us. C.S. Lewis says the following about the power of expectations in life. He says, quote, Imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it's a hotel, the, the other half think it's a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it as a quite intolerable place, and those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. The people who try to hold an optimistic view of this world would become pessimists, and the people who hold a pretty stern view of it become optimistic," end quote. What is Lewis saying? Well, he's telling us that we're not to imagine this life as a stay in a luxury hotel. Comfort is not the purpose of life, and if we believe that it is, we will be constantly disappointed. It will always and ever escape us. Our bodies decay. Our careers end in retirement. Mutual dignity and respect are in short supply. And our efforts, even our best efforts, they, they never produce exactly as much as we hope for. But Lewis is telling us that this life is not a prison either. Lewis's point is that it's much better than that. And, and elsewhere, actually, Lewis speaks of our, of our life as a kind of stay in a hotel. And, and I think that image actually expresses well our need for lifelong healing, our need for being conformed into the image of Christ over the whole course, over the whole duration of our life. And if we think about our life as a kind of stay in the hospital, as a kind of place of healing for getting better, well, if that's the case, we will be constantly surprised. Because even under the curse of sin, the world is full of very good gifts. We take medicine because we need it, and our pleasantly surprised that it actually tastes quite good. As has been said about life in a fallen world, everything outside of hell is grace. So the good things that we receive in this life, let us receive receive them gladly and gratefully. This relationship, this conversation, this job, this meal, this drink, this weather... This book, this beautiful natural scenery, this garden, whatever it is, don't expect too much from it. It's not meant to satisfy the deepest desires and longings of your soul. But it was never meant to. Simply enjoy it for the very good thing that it is. And when you stop expecting it to support the deepest weights and desires of your soul, you'll actually find that you enjoy it more. So give thanks for all of these things because all of these things are more than we deserve and more than we should expect. More than we should expect from this day at our lifelong hospital as we await the resurrection and the restoration of all things, the restoration of all of creation, that we are one day promised. Because again, in a fallen world, Everything outside of hell is grace. So let us never cease to be surprised at how often our medicine is actually sweet to the taste and just how pleasant this hospital actually is. Yes, the Christian life is a life of wrestling with God. The Christian life is one of being formed into the image of Christ, and the Christian life is one of healing in the hospital of God's mercy. But in this wrestling, God does not prevail over us. He does not crush us, he does not humiliate us, he grows us, he heals us, he strengthens us, because he loves us. No pain is ever wasted, no tear is ever lost. In the end, nothing ever fails to work for our ultimate good. And through it all, God is still God. For consider one of the strangest verses in this whole account. Let's go back. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Yes, God is gentle. Yes, God does not prevail against us, but we can never forget that the one that we are dealing with is God himself. And just one touch of Jacob's hip puts Jacob's hip out of socket. And now, seemingly for the rest of his life, Jacob will walk with a limp. And, and Leon Kass, in Leon Cas's in his fascinating book on, on Genesis, and I'll refer, refer to it uh, a few times during this, this sermon, he, he does a great job of, of teasing out the psychological complexities of the characters. But Cass notices an important contrast right here. That is, when, when we first hear Jacob speak of God, if you remember, when, when he lies to his father Isaac and presents himself as, as Esau, when he answers his, his father's question of, how is it that you found the meal so quickly? Well, Jacob answers, the Lord thy God has sent me good speed. This, of course, is a lie. God has not sped him along and allowed him to quickly hunt the game. Rebekah had found the meal and prepared it for him. And Cass points out that the God who did not speed his hunting here has actually, quote, permanently slowed him down. But what could this contrast mean? Jacob's lie about God speeding his endeavor, well, that's the God that we expect. We expect God to bless our efforts and to make our efforts succeed. We expect God to come along and and mainly help us in what it is we're already doing. Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist, in their their landmark book, Soul Searching, they've they've coined a term that has uh, come to be a kind of default religion for American culture, uh, a term you've probably heard before, moralistic therapeutic deism. And they write the following about this common faith, quote, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. End quote. God bless my hunting for game. God bless my job. God bless this paper I'm writing. God bless this job interview. Bless my health. God bless my children's academics and athletics. These are not bad things to ask for. God intends that we bring our desires before Him. But is this all that we're praying for? Do we pray such that God's primary purpose in our lives is simply to come alongside and to help us out in what we're already doing and what we're already pursuing? Is God simply a little extra strength that we can rely on as we pursue our personal processes throughout the day? Well, this is the God. That Isaac expects. So when Jacob talks about God, this is how he describes God. This, this is the lie. That's how he lies about what happened. But what about us? Does this way of thinking also dominate our own prayers? If so, this might be the God that we are also expecting. Yes, God may very well speed us on our journeys, whatever they are, And if so, again, let us receive the blessing of God with gratitude and joy. But to again quote Keller, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. And what then does God give Jacob? Well, he doesn't give him speed. He gives him a limp. Think about that. Again, the Christian life is a life of wrestling with God. And sometimes in his love and power, what God gives us is a limp. God gives us, to, to borrow a, a term from C.S. Lewis, a severe mercy, a severe mercy. And to borrow another thought from C.S. Lewis, one that we've talked about before, God is not safe, but God is good. God is so good that he knows that our good requires that we abandon our preconceived notions of safety. Specifically, those notions of safety that we have set up regarding the way that we believe our life should go. The God of moralistic therapeutic deism assumes that we know what's best for us, but the God of Jacob knows that we do not. So then what does the God of Jacob know that Jacob doesn't know? Well, God knows what Jacob's biggest problems actually are. Look, at me at the, look with me at verse 32, 24. We're told, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It is Jacob's being alone that sets up this wrestling encounter. And as Leon Cass points out, this is not the first time that Jacob is alone. Remember, as he traveled from his household to the household of Laban, he had the dream alone at night, the dream where God met him in Bethel. And he was very much alone that night, but only here are we explicitly told that Jacob was alone. And Cass points out that there's only one other time in Genesis that someone is identified as being alone. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. What's the connection here? Well, this is from the creation account where God creates the whole world and everything in it. And again and again, God looks at what he has made and he says, this is good. However, after all of these declarations of goodness, here we are first met with something that is not good. Adam is meant to be in relationship with other humans. It's not good that the human should be alone. And now Jacob, like Adam, is alone. And of course, Adam's aloneness is understandable. At that point, no other humans have been made. But in Jacob's case, it's not a question of something not being made, but of something being unmade. Jacob has unmade all of the most important relationships in his life. Jacob has severed the relationship with his brother, his father, his wives, his uncle, his children, and we do not meet Rebecca, his mother, again, which suggests that she also has died, arguably the person who Jacob has had the closest and best relationship with. Yes, Jacob is spending the night by himself without the company of people that he traveled with, but this is simply a picture of all of the broken relationships that Jacob has left in his wake. But does Jacob know this? Does Jacob realize the seriousness of this problem? Well, look at Jacob's prayer. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob is fearful. Jacob has been told that Esau is on his way with 400 men, and Jacob supposes that Esau means to do him harm. Jacob is worried. Jacob is afraid. And Jacob prays for rescue from the hand of Esau. He fears what Esau might do to him, and he wants to escape that. However, what we don't find in the prayer is any hope or at least any mention of reconciliation. There's no prayer for the mending of the severed relationship between the two brothers. Jacob does not realize the full danger that he is in, the danger of being alone. He fears the consequences of the relational breakdown more than the breakdown itself. He does not fear a life of resentment and alienation from his brother But what action a resentful and alienated brother might take against him? We might say that Jacob fears the symptoms, but he does not fear the illness itself. Jacob simply seeks to appease Esau, to escape his wrath, to, to lessen his anger. And Jacob's not wrong to fear this. Jacob should fear the harm that Esau might cause him. But if this is all that Jacob fears, then all we have here is simply the love of self. It's not the love of neighbor, but it's Jacob's own desire for self-preservation. He does not desire to be reconciled with this brother. And there's no care to how this relational breakdown is emotionally, spiritually affecting both him and his brother. And this sounds very harsh to say, and, and I do this with trepidation, And we can only do so because this is what God actually did. But what Jacob needed was a limp. The one who has been the perfect picture of using others to get what he wanted and so burned down all of his relational bridges in the process, the one who tried to exist wholly in a self-reliant way upon his trickery and cunning, what this one needed was a limp. This is not the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, who must conform to what we think is best. This is the God of the Bible who conforms us to what he knows is best. This is a God that surprises us. This is a God who is not safe. But this is a God who is good, who has a greater good in mind for us than we could ever imagine, and perhaps at present a good that we don't currently understand. And now Jacob will need the help of others. He will need the help of others to get from place to place. And this is what Jacob needed to be broken of his cunning self-reliance. This limp, God knows, enables Jacob to receive love and help and humbly to see other people as people, not just means to his deception, not just means to his trickery. Only this will rightly open him to the relationships with others that he needs, and yes, this will be painful. Jacob never would have chosen this, but this limp, as difficult as it is to say, is what Jacob needs. Why else would God have given it to him? And this is not an easy truth, and again, we ask this with trepidation, but how has God given us a limp? Perhaps, like Jacob, it's, it's a suffering with a health problem. Maybe even, like Jacob, an issue with our mobility. Or perhaps it's a hardship with, with our job, with our finances, family, some kind of rejection, or a million other things that would make us reliant on other persons in new ways. Again, there's no easy answers here, but we know that God loves us, and he works all of these things for our good. And so we have to ask, how are these hardships calling us to receive help, to receive love, to receive support from others in ways that we never would have done before? If you are struggling, if you are suffering, please reach out to people in this community. God uses our limping to bring us together as a church These things that cause pain and suffering, they're not good things. A Christian is never called to say that a bad thing is good, but we are called to trust God, that God uses all of these for our own good through his sovereign and loving orchestration of our lives. Our God is a God who wrestles. And of course, first and foremost, such difficulties cause us to cling to God even tighter, and this is exactly what Jacob does. He clings to God with all of his might, and in desperation he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob seeks the blessing, the love, the approval, the promise, the assurance of God, and the damage caused by the limp makes this request even more pressing, even more important. Now that Jacob is shaken out of his cunning self-interest, his cunning self-reliance, now that he knows he will need the, the goodwill and love of others, Jacob knows that most of all, he needs the love and goodwill of God himself. And here again, as in many other points in the Jacob narrative, we come to the issue of blessing, of God's promise of the good life. And here we find a moment of redemption. Because once before, Jacob sought a blessing. If you remember earlier talking to his father, his father Isaac, he sought the blessing. And when Isaac asked him, who are you? Who are you? Well, Jacob's answer was a lie. I am Esau, Jacob said. But here... It's not Isaac, but God himself who asks, what is your name? And now being brought to the limit of himself, limping and alone, Jacob finally answers honestly, Jacob. Jacob is my name. As Leon Cass writes, and and this is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's so good. Quote, unlike the episode with his father in which Jacob lied to Isaac about his identity, Jacob this time answers truthfully. In a word, Jacob. But this act of self-naming is also in more profoundly a confession. I am Jacob, yah the heel-catcher, the supplanter, the deceiver, the one who prevails over his opponents by means of guile and trickery. Jacob, for the first time, is compelled to confront his previous being, to describe his character in this act of self-declaration, this truthful confession of his dubious character is part of what makes Jacob eligible for renaming, End quote. How can this be? Shouldn't Jacob receive God's wrath and punishment for this confession of who he really is? I mean, think of all the things that he's done, all of the lying, all of the cheating, all of the deceiving. Shouldn't he receive God's wrath and not God's blessing? Yes, absolutely he should. But he doesn't. And here again, we come to a God that we do not expect. Jacob is not crushed. He's not prevailed against. But there will be one, who is? One who is crushed. One who lived a life free from any deceivery, deceiving or trickery or shrewd self-interest or cunning self-reliance. God the Son will become human, and in his humanity, he will be crushed by both God and humanity. He will experience the just wrath of God that we deserve, that Jacob deserves, and the unjust hatred of fallen humanity upon the cross. Unlike Jacob, who prevailed, Christ will be prevailed upon. Christ will say who he truly is, but unlike Jacob, he will be condemned for it. Each time the crowds ask him who he is, he tells them that he is God, that he and the Father are one, that they share the same one divine nature, that before Jacob's grandfather Abraham was, I am And each time he tells them that he is not only human, but also God the Son himself, they will seek to kill him. Jacob says who he really is, a sinner, a cheater, a deceiver, and Jacob prevails. Christ will say who he really is, God, become human to save us, and he will be prevailed upon. In this, Christ takes Jacob's curse, the curse that Jacob deserves for his confession, So that Jacob, so that we might receive the blessing of the name of Israel, the name of prevailing. Christ takes the cursed name upon himself. So we might receive the name of blessing. Because we all find ourselves in the same situation as Jacob, but God asks us, Who are you? And we, like Jacob, must answer truthfully, I am a sinner. I am a deceiver, I'm a mess of self-interest and cunning self-reliance. I am Jacob. And this is a hard blow, one that will make us limp. This is wrestling with God. But we, like Jacob, after this confession will prevail. Yes, God points us to our sin, but God also points to his deep love for us. He gives us a new name, a name that says that we have prevailed. And God gives us the same blessing that Christ himself receives at his baptism. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Christ has taken the curse of Jacob that we might receive the blessing of God. And this is the gospel. This is wrestling with God. It's the hard blow of God's no that leads us to confession and repentance of sin. But it's also the victorious prevailing of God's yes, that we might receive the righteousness and the blessing of Christ. By faith in Christ alone do we receive this blessing. By faith in Christ alone do we receive this new name. And just like Jacob, we must cling to God in Christ. And this blessing changes everything. It changes Jacob. Remember what set Jacob out on this course of being alone. He's stolen the blessing from his brother Esau, and he flees from him. And as we talked about in an earlier sermon, this blessing is not the blessing of God, but the blessing of of Isaac. It's Isaac's notion of the good life, not God's notion. It's a blessing of competition, of acquiring more resources than your brother, of having your brother bow down low to you. As Isaac says over Jacob, believing him to be Esau, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Yet Jacob, in getting the blessing of God, he's learning to renounce this version of the good life that sees these good gifts as our very greatest good. How do we know? Because when he meets Esau, he works to undo this blessing. He gives Esau a wealth of resources providing generously for him. And Jacob insists on this, even when Esau assures Jacob that I I have enough, you don't have to give this to me. And that's because it has actually become a gift and not just a way of appeasing and pacifying his brother. Jacob insists that Esau takes it. He gives Esau the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. But remember, there's, there's more to Isaac's blessing. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Well, this too is undone between the reunion of Isaac or Jacob and Esau. We find Jacob himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And when addressing Esau, how does Jacob speak? Well, he re- repeatedly refers to him as my Lord, and Jacob calls himself your servant. In undoing the blessing of Isaac, Jacob bows low to his brother and he comes before his brother as a servant. Now that Jacob has received the blessing of God, he is ready to begin mending his aloneness. His God and his limp will begin to change all of the ways that he relates to others. God is now ready to begin cultivating again all of these broken relationships The blessing of God is not based on competition. It's not about divvying up some finite and limited resource. It's about receiving the love and approval and delight of God and the promise that all things, and especially the hardest things, are used by God for our good to conform us into the image of Christ. Therefore, like Jacob, let us give generously and bow low to the ground with each person that we meet. And like Jacob, whatever form our limp takes... Let us ask and receive the love and support of others. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you are a God that we don't expect. We thank you that you are a God who wrestles with us to grow us, not to crush us. And we thank you, Lord, that you yourself were prevailed upon. You were crushed by God and humanity and your Son. Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to that. Help us to know that.
1: We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.